Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavanagh here on TRSI. Today is Sunday, the 13th of the 6th. I am here today, unfortunately, without my friend and colleague, Michael Dwyer. Michael is away at a dinner party, but not like the sort of dinner party that normal, decent, hardworking people would go to. Michael is at a three-day dinner party, something which frankly sounds perverse and also stretching the definition of a dinner party in ways that uh, I simply believe it shouldn't. But here on TRSI, we are very understanding of the perversions of others. So first thing I wanted to mention was a story in The Independent. Fiona Sheehan put it up there on Saturday. It's called Confessions of a Phony Pollster and a Guide to Other Political Dark Arts. Now, we were talking about this on the last podcast about the polls that are being carried out by the parties and what those polls were sometimes used for, because information was often not the actual point of the poll. But he's got a uh, an interesting little piece up. It's got some interesting little tidbits in it, like the fact that Leo personally carried out this polling. And when I say personally carried out, I don't mean he asked for it to be done. I mean, when he was a student, he was one of the people who went around polling people. That is absolutely unsurprising. I wasn't actually aware of that. But considering his position within Young Fine Gael and his general disposition in those years, not surprising at all to hear about it. And the article goes into a couple of the things we mentioned. Also goes more broadly into convention rigging and things like that in the political parties. All fairly well known, but probably not stuff that general members of the public would be aware of. So it could be interesting. It also brings up very briefly a really interesting uh, event in Irish politics. And I imagine most listeners of the show are aware of it, but I wanted to just bring it up and suggest that you look into it if you're interested in politics, particularly the organisational side of politics, and you're not aware of it. Basically what it is, it it relates to the 2007 general election in the constituency of Dublin Central. So in that constituency at the time, Fianna Fáil had three people standing. They had Bertie Ahern, they had Cyprian Brady, who was a long-term Ahern loyalist, and they had Mary Fitzpatrick. And the way Irish politics works in relation to uh, these sort of constituencies. Because in Irish politics, transfers are immensely important. Immensely important. You can come in far lower in first preferences and still take the seat if you're transfer friendly and they're not. So what happens when you have three people or even two people running in a constituency is the parties all have people who would have a good awareness of the situation on the ground. And they will basically split the constituency into areas. And in certain areas, people will be told, you know, vote for a Hearn number one, vote for Brady number two, vote Fitzpatrick number three. In others, they'll be told vote a Hearn one, Fitzpatrick two, Brady three, or whatever. But basically, they will try and divide it so that each candidate has the best shot they can of getting a seat. Well, that's how it's it's usually sold. Sometimes they will openly divide the constituency to get one candidate over the line and a less favoured candidate will be hurt by this. It's one of the big internal issues that political parties have, the actual division of um, vote preferences in their constituencies. And there have been situations where the, the, the central parties have deliberately gone out of the way to screw someone who has very rightly protested that they are being screwed. But Fitzpatrick wanted to increase her odds of getting the seat. And Fitzpatrick wanted to be above Brady. So just before the election, Fitzpatrick sent out uh, material distributed around in areas where she wasn't meant to be, saying that she should be given the first preference vote. And what happened was Bertie Ahern's team responded to this by the next morning. It was called a milk run because by about 5am, 
they had people all over the constituency. They had a, a late night printing run and they had printed up material that said, vote for Ahern first, Brady second, and Fitzpatrick third. So basically what they did was they switched the entire constituency to give Fitzpatrick your third preference. It's hard to tell how many people were actually involved in this. I've heard people say 100 people were on the ground by 5am, which would be a massive undertaking for any political party. But it's kind of like the Civil War. Everyone has a grandfather who was involved in the Civil War. Everyone involved in Finnefall was in some way related to the milk run. The end result, by the way, was that Brady took half the first preferences that Fitzpatrick took. But Brady got elected. And Fitzpatrick didn't because all of Ahern's transfers, or well, not all, but a significant amount of them, went to Brady. And Fitzpatrick lost out. It'd be interesting to see if they could do this nowadays, because as the parties have become kind of more centralised and a lot of the local branches have sort of ossified and corroded, they've lost a lot of their institutional knowledge. There's two parts of this. You can do the top level part of this, where you tell people who to vote for in different areas, and there's lots of people who can do that. The question is, can you get voters to actually do that? It's actually quite difficult to do that. Even Ahern at this point couldn't do it with everyone. And Ahern had one of the finest political teams and machines around him that this country has ever seen, which is why he was able to respond so quickly to that. But it's just, it's an interesting little thing. The article doesn't go into it in a great deal of detail, but it's just, and as I said, I imagine most people listening to the show are already aware of it or may have even participated in it. But if not, it's well worth looking into. There is a book that relates to this. It covers this particular instance from what I remember, but it's also about Ahern's wider political machine. It's called uh, Bertie Ahern and the Drumcondra Mafia. It was by Shane Coleman and Michael Clifford wrote it. It's well worth reading, uh, particularly if you are interested in the more practical side of politics and the actual, the, the constituency level apparatus that highly skilled politicians can build. It's, it's well worth reading on that. And the Drumcondra Mafia was, was legendary inside Irish political circles. When they said they had stopped polling years ago, what they actually meant was they stopped using fake uh, identification credentials years ago because it now turned out that they were doing this at least two years ago. And while I've said, and still continue to say, that the polling thing I don't think is a scandal, I don't think the public cares it is one of those things I look at, you look at, and, and you do have to sort of go, why are you saying all of these things when this is obviously going to come back to you? I mean, at this point, it's kind of a circular firing squad of people who've came out and said, well, we stopped doing it years ago. And you have to sit there and go, I don't think you did. I suspect that you very much did not stop this years ago. And perhaps you may have wanted to do a bit more of a call around to your people to make sure this was something you could say. It will be interesting to see if this can hurt Sinn Féin. I don't mean that in relation to the actual scandal itself, the, the polling thing. I don't think the public cares. What might be interesting and what might be able to hurt Sinn Féin is if there is a general public perception of this as Sinn Féin is just like the other parties. That may actually hurt Sinn Féin. I don't know. I, as I suspect, I, I imagine this will have very little impact. But it will be interesting to see that just to see if there's any movement on it. Second thing I wanted to go into is the aviation industry. So... Obviously, we have had the closing of Stobart Air. This was perhaps unsurprising. Stobart had been looking for a buyer for a while, and there had been some issues there. And of course, you know, it, it, it's a small regional um, airline. It was always going to be in a pretty precarious situation. I don't really want to go into the, the economics of it or things like that. It's obviously terrible. 
that I think Stobert had a maybe about 450 staff, maybe slightly above that. And it was a pretty good company, actually. I've, I've used its services a good bit. But that's not really what I think is of interest here. What I think is of particular interest here is the amount of people we've seen coming out, both in government and opposition, and saying that, you know, this is, is absolutely terrible and unprecedented and nothing could be done about this. I mean, Sean Fleming, the government TD, was on RTE the other day. Now, Fleming is, he's in uh, Leash. He's also the chair of the Public Accounts Committee at the minute, I believe. And when he went on RTE, they said, well, some people are saying that this happened because of government ineptitude. And Fleming's response was very strong. He was very much against the idea that the government had anything to do with this. He said it wasn't government policy. It was COVID. And there was nothing the government could have done. The government is trying its best. And it's something we've talked about on this show before. The government has had an incredible ability to present the results of its policies or its failure to implement policies in certain areas as inevitable results of COVID-19. Nothing bad that happens is the government's fault. It is simply COVID. Everything good that happens is the result of wise policy choices, but everything bad is simply due to COVID. The problem there is when you actually look at the aviation industry and you look at how it's being treated, Ireland is a clear outlier in relation to that. I mean, the Irish aviation industry has been asking for literal months. They have gone to the effort. There's a group called Recover Irish Aviation. They had put together a, a, not a rescue package, but a plan to keep Irish aviation afloat. They've been trying to do that for a great deal of time. And there has been no movement. For all we hear that the government's saying, well, this is the inevitable consequence of it. The government has been being told for months that the aviation industry is suffering immensely. And yes, there are supports there for the aviation industry, but to, to the best of my knowledge, and I could be wrong on this, but to the best of my knowledge, the support packages available for the aviation industry are the same as general industries. But there was always a strong argument that the aviation industry and certain other sectors should be taken out and treated differently because of their reliance on certain things, like aviation industry, obviously travel. The government has has had people coming to them for plans, with plans for ages. They haven't done anything on it. They haven't put in place any of the specialised support packages that were talked about and were requested. They've been very slow to move on things like antigen testing or allowing people to fly under certain conditions. And we have now seen pretty inevitable result of those policies. I mean, we've also seen members of the opposition get up and talk about how this is outrageous, this is X, this is Y... This is all those terrible things. Many of these people who pushed for explicitly zero COVID policies and were also not terribly fast on taking up the idea of greater state support for this sector. So you have opposition figures who many of them have actually previously talked about how supportive they were of government measures in relation to this or have pushed for harsher measures and were not at the same time pushing for supports talking about it's outrageous that this was meant to happen. And you do have to sort of go, well, what did you think was going to happen? If you shut down all of these sectors and you're pushing for heavier shutdowns and longer shutdowns, this is what happens. I mean, the aviation industry, so it's lost one year already. They're not opening in June. They're going to open in July at some point, it looks like. And we look like we're going to be opening more than two weeks behind the rest of Europe on the aviation front. And that doesn't take into account that a lot of Europe is internally, aviation is already operating at a higher level than here. So we now have 450 jobs lost 
and we have this general, it's not our fault. And that is the constant refrain of Irish politics. Nothing bad is our fault. We could have done nothing else. Many other things they could have done. They didn't do them. And you could say, well, we didn't explicitly set out to hurt the aviation industry. Okay, that may be the case. And I suspect that is the case, because why would you set out to deliberately hurt the aviation industry? But nor does it seem that they had any particular care for the sector. And this bodes quite badly for the future, because what's going to have to happen is when the the various state supports taper off, there's going to ha- that's going to have to be done in a very particular way to avoid firms just imploding all over the place. And if they can be caught by surprise by something like this... I mean, Stobart is not, in the scale of aviation firms, a large firm. But it's a large regional employer. This is something they should have absolutely been on top of. And I would be very surprised if Stobart had not been reaching out to politicians previously to this, saying that they were in trouble. Maybe they didn't. But in the general course of things, you would expect that this is something that was being brought up with government purely because of its size as a regional employer. It's also the case here that we now have a very serious issue with what goes on with those regional flights. Who's going to take them over? Aer Lingus and Ryanair have been moving assets outside of the state for a while now. They've said that the way the state is going is simply not conducive to actually keeping them here. And they're going to go to other countries that are better equipped to deal with it. And yes, these are traditionally Irish firms and they may have attachments to Ireland. But at the end of the day... If the country is simply totally unwilling to deal with them or to move in the same direction as Europe at the same times, and they're bleeding money, they don't really have a lot of choice. They'll do things that they wouldn't normally do. So it'll be very interesting to see. I mean, Erlingus is no longer, you know, it's, it's not the, the Irish state airline anymore. But I just wanted to, to bring it up. It's a standard Irish story, I think. It's never our fault. Only successes are ours. Failures are merely inevitable, and please don't look too much into that, because, yeah, people may have been asking us about this for months, and we may have decided simply to ignore them. I mean, the aviation industry has actually been pretty direct on this. Um, I know that the the Irish Airline Pilots Association came out and just said, this is the fault of the Irish government. Explicitly, no equivocation, just the Irish government did this. One other thing that Fleming said when he was on radio, and this kind of relates to the polling issue and politicians saying things that are just making a stick for their own back. Fleming didn't just say that it wasn't the Irish government's fault. Fleming said that the Irish government is doing a mighty job for aviation. There is a point at which you just stop talking and you want to get through that interview without accepting blame for what has happened. If you start saying, actually, we're doing fantastically, the immediate response is going to be, then why did 450 people just lose their jobs? And why are the people in the know in this industry saying it was your fault? So sometimes it's better to keep the bullshit to a lower level and hope you just get through. Reporters are very hesitant, push back heavily against politicians a lot of the time. But if you start saying things like, not only is this not our fault, but we're doing great, you increase the odds of someone going, But isn't that nonsense? Like, total nonsense. But anyway, so I suppose the last thing is to talk about the recent poll that came out. This was a Sunday Times B&A poll. So Sinn Féin, 34 plus 4. Finnegal, 24 minus 4. Finnefall, 20 minus 2. Green Party, 4 minus 1. Sock Dems, 4 plus 2. Labour, 3 minus 1. Solidarity, People for Profit, 1. 
into 1 plus 1, uh, independent and others 9 plus 1. The BNA poles generally have Finifal higher than other poles, which is why Finifal are coming in at 20 on this and are coming in in the, you know, 9 to 11 region in other poles. Like, this isn't a solid return to form for Finifal. Or there was a time when Finifal on 20% describing that as a solid return to form would be ridiculous. I mean, that would have been disastrous for Finifal to poll at. That was simply, those were numbers Finifal did not do. But here we are. There are a couple of things interesting in this poll. Obviously, the fact that Sinn Féin, 34 up 4, and, I mean, the second place is Finnegal 24 minus 4. Sinn Féin, the broad expectation amongst civic society, amongst the NGOs, amongst those institutions, those groups, is that Sinn Féin are leading the next government. Inside, at least Fine Gael, at least the, a lot of the people I've talked to have also had uh, that perception. haven't really talked to any of the Fianna Fáil lads about it, but I would expect they are somewhere in the same space. Although these are people who convinced themselves that you know, a decade of Michal Martin was leading them to great and prosperous things. So God knows what they actually think. And the interesting thing about that is you've started to see, it hasn't been, really been reported on, but in the background, institutions that one would have thought were virulently opposed to Sinn Féin have started to make pleasant noises about them. And there have been, should we say, a series of private meetings between people in various positions in NGOs and other civic institutions and groups and things of the like with Sinn Féin candidates or Sinn Féin people or advisors that would not have happened beforehand because regardless of what these people actually think of Sinn Féin, they will want to work with Sinn Féin. So this is the great joy of the assumption of power. I suppose if you are, you know, if you are really heavily supporting the government, you could say, well, you know, the government is holding steady at about 50%, and that would appear to be true. The interesting thing about Sinn Féin at 34 is obviously, if they do go into power, who do they go into power with? And this is Fine Gael's real problem, or the problem that they've had for a good while. When they were polling way above Fianna Fáil and also above Sinn Féin, they were never polling so high that if they had collapsed the government, they would have had someone easy to go in with. That's even assuming they had wanted to collapse the government. But it's nice to have the option. There's an old saying, and it's a pretty horrible saying, but it's true, that in any relationship, the person with the most power is the one who cares the least. And if you know if you bring down the government, you can simply reform a new government where you have more control. It'll enable you to do things in government that you wouldn't otherwise, because the people you're with are terrified that you'll do it. At present, though, with Fine Gael at 24, the only realistic government that they could get would be with Fianna Fáil and maybe with... I mean, at the speed they're growing, the Social Democrats. Social Democrats now, now over Labour, which would probably explain why Labour are again talking about coming in with the Social Democrats. I really did think Kelly would have had more of an impact on Labour, and the fact he hasn't may be giving the Social Dems a bit of pause because you keep changing leadership and you're just not seeing any upward momentum. If Sinn Féin do go in, that'll be quite interesting. It'll be very interesting to see who they go in with and what will happen. And it'll also be very interesting to see what their vote does if they go in, and how much of Sinn Féin's vote is based on an assumption that they are fundamentally different from the other parties, kind of going back to what I was saying about the polling. Because that's the case, and they go in and they aren't fundamentally different. Do they lose... A deal of their vote. There's been always been the argument that a lot of what we've seen of populist movements in Europe and the like hasn't really arisen in Ireland because those people go for Sinn Féin and because Sinn Féin have been locked out of government so long 
they managed to keep that populist section of the party because they've never, in the South anyway, had to make the sort of trade-offs you need to make in government. So it'll be interesting if Sinn Féin go in, will those voters break off and does that leave space for new political groupings in Ireland? Or do they stick with Sinn Féin? Or does Sinn Féin go in and perform really well? It'll be difficult to tell. I mean, Sinn Féin have some very good people. They also have some total whack jobs who are now sitting in a doll who I would strongly suspect were put there as paper candidates and never intend to sit. This, by the way, is something political parties do perfect, or very commonly. Let's say you don't have enough women. Well, you just run more women. But you go to people and you go, listen, you're not going to win. We just need the names on the ballots. Or if you have any demographic that you need to win or you need to run or you need to run however many people in an area to give a certain perception, you do it. Paper candidates are told they're not going to win. So you end up with Sinn Féin TDs who you know, may go on holiday over the course of the election. And I'm not saying that that candidate in particular was a paper candidate, but I am saying it's the sort of thing you would do if you were a paper candidate. And there's nothing wrong with that, by the way. If you're not going to win and you still want someone on the ballot, it's perfectly reasonable to put someone down. And if you know you're not going to win, well then, why not do it? As Aintu discovered the last time around, you want as many people on ballots as you can without damaging your other votes. But it's interesting, if Sinn Féin can maintain this memento, they're kind of going into, you know, old Fianna Fáil levels of support. And it will be very interesting to see if they can keep it. And I suppose it will be very interesting to see how they govern. But then again, I mean, I know before the last general election, I was asked to predict how Sinn Féin would do and what the election results would be. And it was written down, so I got to see later how off I was. And all I could say in my defence was, well, look, they came off an absolutely devastating local election. And that's usually a bellwether for general elections. So it'll be interesting. And the thing, you know, obviously their fortunes turned around quite quickly. But if your fortunes turn around quite quickly in the positive, how quickly can your fortunes go down? On the other hand, what is the differentiating factor between Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil? And why at this point would you vote for either of them? I see we have Leo coming out and talking about tax breaks. It's good that Fine Gael are finally considering you know, tax breaks for people after, oh, what, a decade in government? You know, the, the party of fiscal conservatism is finally getting around to it. But that's that's basically all you have. You know, once a decade, you get a signaling thing of, well, we'd like to do this. And we're going to make some noise about it. Be interesting to see if that actually happens, because I know the Fiscal Advisory Council and some of the more accountancy-minded people are pointing to the huge hole in public finances that would make. But that doesn't seem to make any difference anymore. We'll just borrow anything we want and just assume it'll be fine down the road and inflation will sort that out. And, oh God, wouldn't it be great if there was some inflation at some point? Fine Gael coming out and saying that gives Fianna Fáil an opportunity to come out and say, no, we want to put up welfare payments. And so they, you know, they both get to say something and it both looks like they have policies for a brief period. But frankly, I, I don't. I don't know. So I just wanted to touch on those brief stories. We will be back on Wednesday and then we will be gone for, I'd say, a week, week and a half. And we will see how that uh, plays. But we will definitely be back after the week and a half. That that shouldn't kill us. This podcast, by the way, works on essentially the same uh, reasoning why people go to the gym. It's not about motivation and it's not about any and discipline or anything like that. We've just built ourselves into pure habitation that we will produce podcasts at a certain time and do these things. And that's how you keep doing something. You keep doing it by basically setting it in motion and never thinking about it again. Because inertia is the strongest force in human existence. 
We will be back on Wednesday. All the best.